please do take a seat. And let me say a very good evening to you all. My name is Ken, and I'm one of the ministers here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you uh, yet, then hopefully I'll get a chance to say hi over the barbecue later on this evening. We're tackling the question, why bother with Christianity tonight? Uh, and I guess that for a lot of folks these days, they would say, don't. <laughs> don't bother with it. Uh, that was certainly a temptation for me when I was a teenager. Uh, I thought Christianity was a bit like those swimming lessons where you had to rescue a rubber brick from the deep end of the swimming pool with your pajamas on. Did anyone else have to do that? Do they, I, I don't think they do it anymore. I, think, yeah, I, I didn't think I was alone in having to uh, do that. Uh, but uh, for some reason, uh, everybody in my school thought it was just a perfectly normal, everyday kind of thing to do. But I was utterly baffled by it. I used to wonder, why on earth are we rescuing bricks? I mean, it's not entirely realistic, is it? How many bricks need rescuing each year from water? And even if there was the unlikely occasion in which a brick was struggling in deep water with cramp or you know, some other complaint that falling bits of masonry do struggle with, what was the chances that at just that point in time I would be passing by wearing my pajamas. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, and even if I did, even if I was, then, then why, why would I want to save a rubber brick? I mean, what are rubber bricks for anyway? Unless you want to build a rubber house. I mean, why bother? That's what I thought. And likewise, I thought the same thing about Christianity at times. It was a comforting safety blanket to have just in the background of my life, but it just didn't seem to be worth making a big effort for, really going out on a limb for. Not least when in my first year at university, I watched my beloved grandpa in his painful deterioration as he struggled with cancer until suddenly he was gone. And I mourned him really deeply and yet, no one around me seemed to have much comfort for me. Any answers? Even at church. And the issue I had to face up to was, Ken, do you have a philosophy of life that can handle it at its, its widest point, its broadest point? In, in other words, in the face of death. Um, I didn't. The answer was no, I didn't. But hot on the heels of that first issue comes a, a second one. Not so much my grandpa's death, but what was the point of his life? Standing at the graveside, it seemed like, what was that all about? And it made me think about how sometimes life just seems like a treadmill, doesn't it? <laughs> Have you found this? Sometimes you just, each day it just goes round and round again. Same old, same old, same old, same old. Like we're on a treadmill. And you wonder, what is, where is this leading? What, what's the point of this? Has it really got any purpose? Well, that was the dilemma that guy Solomon faced up to in that Bible reading Johnny just gave us. He was on a mission in Ecclesiastes 2 to see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. And so Solomon starts verse 1 by pursuing pleasure. Like many of us, he thinks, I know, having a good time, having a laugh, that'll be the answer. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? 
Laughter's a great thing. It really is. I mean, I hope you can have a laugh in life. But I've spoken to many people over the years who folks would have thought were the life and soul of the party, and yet deep down underneath it, they were struggling with depression. You would never have known. I know only too well how laughter can be a mask to hide the deep ache within. So Solomon moves on in verse 3 from laughter to drinking. Uh, I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart's still guiding me with wisdom. He says, I know, I'll drink my way out of it. But yet he still had to wake up the next day and deal with the inevitable hangover. So verse, five, verse 8, he moves on to money and to sex. As he tells us, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasure and, and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. And we know that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines, beautiful, beautiful women, yet sadly they were given to him through trade treaties. It is horrific to think about. But do you see what's going on here? Solomon took sexual pleasure to the end of the road, and yet he found the paradox of pleasure. The more you get, the less it satisfies. So he turns, as many of us do, to trying to find meaning and purpose through our work. He, he says to himself, I know, I'll make my mark by what I achieve. And so he builds and he builds and he builds. And, and the result of his labors is seen in Ecclesiastes 2 verse 9. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. I wonder who you would say is the greatest man or woman of our generation. Let's have a think about that for a moment. Who'd you think? You know, just right up there. <laughs> in Solomon's day, it was him. He was that guy. And yet, despite all his success and the joy he found in it, it was rewarding. He still says, verse 11, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. I wonder if, as you came in through the door off the street this evening, if you'd just seen me out there just running round and round in circles, and you turned to me, okay, maybe we haven't met, but you were bald, and you turned to me and you said, Ken, what, what on earth are you doing? And I said to you, I'm chasing after the wind. I mean, you wouldn't listen to me, would you, after that? I mean, you might not want to listen to me anyway, but you really wouldn't want to listen to me after you've witnessed that. You'd think I was mad. But Solomon says, that's what we all do in life's great spin cycle. I don't know if you, you know this, if, if you can relate to this spin cycle. We set our goals. Then we, we achieve them, hopefully. <laughs> and then there's euphoria. Oh, it just feels so good. Top of, the, top of the world. And then emptiness. That's how it always seems to go. Goal, achievement, euphoria, emptiness. I can relate to that. It feels sometimes just like you're chasing the wind. And I suspect many of you can relate to that too. So there's the issue of death, the issue of meaning, and then, then thirdly, there's the issue of selfishness. One of the best autobiographies I have ever read is Lance Armstrong's It's Not About the Bike. And we now know, after the doping scandal that broke, that uh, that really is true. It was not about the bike. <laughs> 
In fact, I love the, the story of the Australian lending library, who, once it was discovered just how much doping Armstrong had had to do to win a seven Tour de France titles, they moved the book from the biography section to fiction. That's class. I love it. Classic Aussie humor. But there was this gap, wasn't there, in his, in his life, between who he wanted people to think he was and who he really was. And I think that's true of all of us, if we're honest. We are not who we should be. We are not who we want to be. When I was a teenager, I, I kept a diary a little like this. Um, and I, I did so intermittently, but I did it because, well, I thought I was such a great guy that I owed it to the world, to future generations, to you, to keep all of my thoughts written down because they were so amazing. But then I remember digging it out a little while after my grandpa's death. And I reread some of it. And I suddenly realized I was a complete and utter burk. I mean, it was so depressing. Uh, my life and my lip just didn't match up. These high ideals that I'd, I'd written in there about how life should be lived, weren't what were being lived out actually in my life. I read late, years later in the book of Romans in the Bible, a fellow called the Apostle Paul saying of his own life, I don't do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. And can I just say that you're never going to really engage with the Christian faith unless you're willing to look within and take responsibility for what you see there. Like, just think. What would it be like never to have told a lie? What would it be like never to have envied or got angry? What would it be like never to have entered into a conversation with merely the sole purpose of wanting to elevate ourselves? Why is it that we so often hurt the ones that we love the most? There's this problem, isn't there, with the human condition? So death, meaning, selfishness, those are the three issues that I found I had to face up to. I think that we all have to face up to at some point in our lives. And to my great surprise, as I turned to the Bible, I more and more found that the person of Jesus began to walk off the pages and hit these issues head on. So issue number one, death. I found that Jesus lived and he taught and he had a band of followers and then he, he was tried on trumped-up charges by a Jewish and a Roman court. And he was sentenced to death and crucified on a cross and certified dead. And yet, incredibly, three days later, he was up and alive and <laughs> walking around again. It seemed almost too good to be true, yet digging into the evidence for Jesus' resurrection, let me really encourage you strongly to dig into that evidence for yourself. Don't just take my word for this, but I found it so solid that it's no wonder that one historian has remarked that it is the best attested fact of history. And that means the coffin is not an exitless box. Jesus says, yes, there 
is life beyond death. And because Jesus has got himself through death, then it means surely he can have the, he has the power to get me through too, to get you through too. That's a game changer, isn't it? Because we're not here for long and, and life is so uncertain. We never know when death might strike. Maybe you've experienced that in your family's life. I recently conducted the funeral of a 14-year-old boy. And I started the service, as I so often do at funerals, by saying these words from John's Gospel. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And what he's asking us there is, when it comes to your death, will you trust me to pull you through? I don't know how you are with directions, but death is the one journey that we cannot make on our own. Even Google Maps is useless in helping us. But Jesus is saying here that if you put your hand in his hand and walk into death with him, that is the only way that we can get to what he has prepared for us beyond the grave. And that changes everything. Everything. Including how we live now. Which leads me to issue number two, meaning. Because what's the purpose of life now that Jesus is risen. Viktor Frankl was a Jewish doctor who struggled with this issue. He, was, he actually survived a Nazi concentration camp during World War II. And in his famous book, Man's Search for Meaning, he explored the reasons why some people under those horrendous conditions managed to stay kind and strong, while others just caved in and gave up, or worse still, became Nazi collaborators in order to survive. And his conclusion was that it all had to do with a person's meaning of life. Many people have made career or social status or family their meaning of life, and those meanings were based on things in this life, life that the death camps just swept completely away. But others... Those who didn't crumble under the pressure, uh, they often had a different kind of reference point that rose above the circumstances of life. Sometimes it was a, a family member uh, or a spouse who they didn't want to disappoint, but more often than not, it was their faith in God, which, much to the surprise of many, was strengthened, not weakened by what they went through. Frankl discovered that the only way for the prisoners to retain their humanity was to relocate the, the meaning of their life in some kind of supreme reference point beyond this life and even this world. And folks, we don't have to cook up that meaning for ourselves because he came down as a person in Jesus. Here's the start of a guy called John's account of Jesus' life. He says, in the beginning was the Word, which is a name he uses for Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Do you see what John is saying there? He's saying, yes, there is a God. I mean, deep down, we all have a sneaking suspicion that there is, don't we? But then comes the mind blow. (laughs) As John tells us that this mysterious word, who was not only with God in the beginning, but is God himself, he became flesh and made his dwelling with us. This person, Jesus, he became a child 2,000 years at Christmas. 2,000 years ago at Christmas. And he is none other than God himself. You see, God is like the kid at the football. I don't know if you, you, you watch football, but sometimes before the match, they'll be interviewing somebody outside the ground. And you'll see this kid jumping up and down behind the... You're trying to get on the camera. <laughs> That's what God is like. He's going, I'm here, I'm here. Have you ever wondered to yourself, you know, if there is a God, why doesn't he make himself more obvious? He has. He is not hiding. And so he's made himself known to us in the person of Jesus so that we can know he's really there. And we can know what he's really like. And we can know the purpose of this life that he has given us. You see, we don't have to face the pressure of filling our purposeless void by seeking distraction or creating some kind of meaning for ourselves. Because we can meet our creator and find the purpose that he made us for in the first place, which is to know him and to please him and to be like him. And who wouldn't want to be like Jesus? Read more of the other accounts of Jesus' life and you'll see he was the warmest, most compassionate, fair and just and kind and loving person that there ever has been. There's no one like him. And at the end of the day, life is supposed to be lived in relationship with Jesus. You see, it's all about him. Let me illustrate that because I, I feel like you might just be flagging a little bit uh, at that point. You, you look like it's that time of the evening when you might be getting a little bit tired. Um, you know, we haven't eaten yet, still got the barbecue to go. So come on, let's see who's, who's, who's up for a catch. Anyone? Come on. Who's, who's up? Right, okay, let's see if I can get it back there. Oh no, help. Oh, look out. <laughs> All right, okay, and back, and back to me, okay, come on, oh, there, there it is, there it is, okay, all right, we'll put it back in, right, who's, who's next, who's, who's up, who's up, see, okay, I'm going, I'm going right, right to the back, okay, are we in, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, and back, and back, yep, oh, yes, look at me, look at the arm there, okay, one more, I feel it's all this side, what's wrong with you guys, your, your chickens, come on, who's, 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 who's going to take this one, Joseph, Oh no, is it the post? That's why I don't go that side. It's my bad side. Let's give, let's give up. At, right, okay. Here's, here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do. Let's do it without the ball now, okay? Joseph, right, okay. Okay, and back, and back. Oh, all right, okay, okay. Anna, yeah, and back, and back. What, what am I doing there? Have I, got, have I gone completely mad, finally? No, 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 no. It's just that if there's no ball, then the game totally loses its meaning, doesn't it? Totally loses its meaning. And for Christians in life, Jesus is like the ball. That's, that's what it's like. He should be right at the center of it. 
You might be here thinking that Christianity is it's all about rules and, 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 and trying to make people behave. It is not. It is way, way more exciting than that. It's all about Jesus. And if you make it your goal, as Christians do, to know and listen to him and, and become like him, then that is a meaning that cannot be destroyed by the hard times. Because if anything, the pain and the suffering in this world brings us closer to him, because it brings us closer to his heart. Jesus came into this world because his heart breaks over the suffering there is here. The Christian teaching is that the world is fractured and broken because we have cut ourselves off from our maker, with our own self-centeredness and sin. And Jesus comes not only to show us how to live, but he comes to deal with that too. Issue number three, our selfishness. You see, as I looked at my life, I found that actually the big issue wasn't just that I was cornered by my conscience, but that I totally ignored God. I'd taken all of his incredible gifts in this world and yet ignored the giver. And I hate it when people do that to me. I hate it, don't you? And I found that there was in the Bible what we all know deep down there will be, which is a day of reckoning, a day of judgment. And so that means that how I treat you matters to God and how you treat me matters to God and how we treat the world matters to God. I I hope you can agree that that is a really, really good thing. I read a news report this week about how the Uyghur people in China are being arrested for absolutely no reason and kept in captivity and often sexually abused before then being executed on a vast scale so that their organs can be used for research or transplants. I read that and it just made me sick to the pit of my stomach. But I can't do anything about that other than tell you. Yeah, I am certain that because Jesus rose from the dead, one day the people who have done that will be judged. The Bible says this, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So the end of my life, I will meet God face to face and he's going to ask me two questions, the Bible tells me. Ken, question one, Ken, what did you do with the life that I gave you? And then secondly, uh, more than that, what did you do with my son Jesus? who I sent you. I mean, if, if Jesus is, is meant to be as central to our lives as a ball is to a game, then you know, how have we treated him? And on that day, as I stand before the God who made me, I can either pay for my sins myself, or incredibly, amazingly, I could allow Jesus Christ to pay for me through his death on the cross. For the cross was not just a travesty of justice, But at the cross, Jesus died in my place for my wrongdoing. And as soon as you accept Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, it is as though you're you're given a diary like this one. Because what happens is that Jesus doesn't only pay for your sin and wipe it away. So you've got a clean slate. 
but he also gives you his perfect life. So if you're trusting in Jesus, as God looks at you, he sees his son. So everything you've done wrong, I wonder if you can see that it's all wiped away and you can have his spotless life. God sends his son and there's this incredible swap. He takes my sin and I I am wrapped up into him to live with him and through him and by his power. Can I tell you, if you get that, it is a source of overwhelming joy and peace because you know what you like and yet you're so deeply loved by the God of all heaven and earth that he sent his son to die for you. It's incredible. And I just want to say, isn't that something worth checking out? Isn't that something worth bothering about? We're going to sing again now before Ben is going to come back and land things and and help us see one or two ways that we can pursue this a bit further. Let me encourage you to get on your feet and stand.